So which of you, you're watching that video and you're like, that is a lot of salt. It takes a lot of love, doesn't it? I mean, a lot of love to change someone and to affect what's around you. I am so guilty of thinking I've loved my neighbor as myself because I've made a genuine act. I've done a sincere thing. And I just wonder how often in the grand scope that act or that thing might correspond to one simple grain of sand. And then I walk away, of course, dejected or sad because it doesn't seem like it made a difference, right? Do you, do you ever act this way, feel this way? Yeah, you know what I mean. You know what I mean? It takes a lot of love. It's exhausting. It's exhausting, but it's the right thing to do. And it's the way of Jesus, and he promises. It changes things. I uh, want to share another email with you today. An excerpt from one that someone sent me. Let me share this with you. On a different note, responding to our series right now, this ugly side of community that we're trying to navigate through as Jesus followers in a way that, that honors and pleases him, right? With this in mind, on a different note, you've chosen a good topic for Sunday. I recently had to walk away from social media due to the stress caused by the political viewpoints of a friend at FOF. I had to choose between connecting with many friends on social media or losing my friend due to the political venom. Praying with you that God will guide your words and your hearts as you present this Sunday's topic. And I thank you for those prayers. I thank you so much. I ask them for you today, but I know you've been there too. Political is the easy one right now. It's, it's so in our face, but, but it comes up over all sorts of things, doesn't it? Not just political, but how many times have we been there where we've kind of found ourselves having to make this choice. I love this community. I love this, this gathering. I love this social media platform. But there's just this person there who's so ugly, this person there who's so mean, this person there who is just so... You can't even really put words to it because it just riles something up, doesn't it? And you find yourself in this place of going, I am just walking away. Be it personally, or be it digitally. You know, last week we opened the can on this, <laughs> you know, and, and really started talking uh, honestly about how to guard our own tongues, to use the old King James language. How to go about watching our communication patterns, be they in social media or interpersonally with others or about others when they're not around, how we go about talking about others and writing about others and posting about others, be it people that we know or be it people in the national media or whoever it might be, and, and, and trying to guard our tongues in a way that, that honors God and how we communicate. Today, we take it a step further. We're not going to be so much talking about the blast radius that we might cause as the blast radius we find ourselves in. You know what I mean? The written and verbal blast radius of others. How God calls us to respond to others who are saying mean things, 
talking in a slanderous way, filled with mean or vindictive intentions or spirit, insensitive towards what others might think of by this or are going through with this. Last week was kind of one that we could cheer on. You're not going to like today. Because I think today kind of hits home for more of us. All of us have been guilty at times of propagating a negative blast radius. And in those times, we have to be the first to repent. But of the many of us, I believe, and maybe naively, it's a relatively few of us who find ourselves really kind of practicing that way regularly. No, I think today is where more of us find ourselves caught in the crossfire, caught in the verbal blast, the written blast, the social media blast, not knowing what to do. And here's what I found. What I've found is that the way most of us tend to respond is this. When it happens, we avoid it. You know the situation. You're on social media, someone posts something mean, something angry, something nasty, something very judgmental or condescending. Fill in the blank. And we know this feeling. I, I don't know how to describe it. I thought about this, and I don't know how to put it to words, but I think you know where I'm at. That feeling that starts to rise up where it's this mixture of dread combined with either anger or embarrassment or frustration and somehow a certain kind of emotional wedge has now pierced in to the relationship with this person. They don't even know it. But this emotional wedge has kind of driven itself in and we suddenly feel in our hearts this, this unease or disgust or anger or reactionary kind of attitude. And so what do we do? We try to be the bigger person. And so we avoid. We don't get baited. We don't respond. We avoid. And a few days goes by and it's kind of starting to settle. And then they post again. And everything that you think you've put beside, it's right back, isn't it? And so what do we do? We turn the other cheek and we try to rise above it and we avoid again. But the problem is that the pattern continues. And meanwhile, we realize we're never really getting over it because every time we see it again, we're more sensitive, more raw, it comes up more quickly and the disgust galvanizes more and more and it always culminates in one of two things, doesn't it? It either hits the boiling point and we just explode out there, maybe putting a comment out like, you know, you're what's wrong with America or you're a bigot, or you're a fill-in-the-blank, or we go the other way. We go ghost, right? We seal them off, hermetically put them aside. We, we defriend, we remove, we eliminate. We cut them off, 
And meanwhile, we continue to stew in our hearts with an anger over this person. And meanwhile, that person feels even more galvanized in what they said because of your reaction to them. Or you go on in life for the next several months or even several years. You know what I mean. With this anger towards them and they don't even have a clue that there's anything wrong to begin with. You know what I'm talking about, right? So many of you live there and have been there. And we struggle, don't we? God, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? In light of times like these, how do you want me to respond to mean, nasty, belligerent, overly opinionated, and insensitive people? You know, It strikes me that this tendency we have to avoid, I think it flows from a value system that that we've been immersed in, that we've come to adopt. It's a growing value in the United States of tolerance. As Americans, we're taught to tolerate people. That we're all different, so you just kind of put up with people and get on with it. The problem is, Jesus doesn't say, tolerate your neighbor as yourself. Jesus calls us to love people. And love looks very different than tolerance. And the problem is, tolerance at some level doesn't even seem to work. Oh, it can work for something incidental, something small, something on the side. But the problem with tolerance is the feelings just don't go away. And especially in a social media culture where there is no escape. There's no escape except for removing yourself from the medium entirely. Where you're plunged daily into the opinions and attitudes of others. Unless you're willing to go Amish, and get rid of your phone, your computer, your radio, and your TV. The attitudes and opinions of of others are, are, are something you just can't avoid anymore. And so it always hits a boiling point because you're always stuck in it. And you end up with Kenosha or violent protests or whatever else it might be where people finally burst because you can only tolerate so much before it starts eroding you or exploding out of you. But Jesus calls to a different way. He doesn't say tolerate your neighbor as yourself. No, he says love. Love your neighbor as yourself and love looks very different than tolerance. And those of you here who call yourself Christian, and who call yourself American. You're going to have a tough choice to make about which value system to adhere to and whether you are going to first prioritize the values of the cross 
or the emerging values of the red, white, and blue. Now, I want to share a quote with you today. It's one that has been very influential on me. I came across this five, seven years ago. It's by D.A. Carson, and it's quoted from a book. The title is great. It's called Unoffendable. I tried to get the whole thing on the screen for you. I know it's dense. Let me just read this. He writes, ideally, however, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together, not because they form a natural collocation, Google it, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. In the light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says, and he commands them. He commands them to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Welcome to the church. Doesn't that stink? Wouldn't you rather have it another way? Welcome to over 15,000 denominations in the United States today. Because whatever Jesus commands, it is so hard to follow. To love others who are different than you. And the irony of this statement is that even though it's about the church, isn't it really true about America too? That we as a nation are made up of not natural-born friends, but natural-born enemies. And what unites us is not common bonds of education or race or income or politics or nationality or anything. It's ironic, isn't it? But see, the world today seeks to tolerate their neighbor as themselves, and so they'll never get it. Christ calls you to something different, to live a different way. The church has always been intended by God to be salt and light. It is no coincidence that Gwen used salt for the egg. To be salt and light that buoys up others that we find ourselves in relationship with. Because I tell you, God wants you in relationships with other people. And he wants you in relationships with people that don't agree with you and that you don't agree with. He wants you in relationships with people you don't like. He wants you in relationships with natural-born enemies. I think of this monk. I had a chance to have an amazing conversation with. There's this monastery in Kentucky. Some of you have heard me talk of it before that a friend of mine, Keith Peters, keyed a number of us into. I see some of you standing here 
who've been part of the pilgrimages. This monastery that opens their doors in hospitality to allow people on a retreat with them. And I remember having this conversation with this monk. I went to confession. I know, yes, I'm not Catholic, but I really wanted to see what it was like. And, and I went, and, and we had the best conversation for an hour. And I remember him telling me, so candidly, the guy was great. The hardest thing about being a monk. It's like, it's not what you think. Everyone thinks that the hard thing about me being a monk is like the life of simplicity or chastity or denying yourself food or cutting yourself off from entertainment or the rigidity of the lifestyle that you live that, that is very difficult and demanding or things of that sort. He's like, no, that's really not it. So the hard thing about being a monk is living in community with other people. Told me an example of how whenever one of their brothers would die, and yes, they would call each other brother. I think there's something lost by us not calling each other brother, even our natural-born enemies. It reminds us of something, doesn't it? But he would talk about how they would do vigils after a brother would die for 24 hours the monastic community would take shifts in graveside or bedside, however you want to put it, vigils for 24 hours of praying for this departed soul before they would go to bury him. And he'd recount to me how, having been through this a number of times, occasionally he would be there by the casket of someone he didn't like. And I'm putting that pleasantly and delicately. And looking at that man laying in that coffin and having this moment inside going, why did I hate him so bad? Kind of coming to his senses almost. This man that who he hated his guts. Looking at him now. Why did I hate him so bad? God calls us into relationships. He wants us in relationships. He wants you in relationships. Even with natural born enemies. I want to share with you today Jesus' way of doing this. Because it's hard and it's confusing and we don't really know what to do, do we, oftentimes? And he's blasting and I mean, in the moment, how do I actually respond at a nuts and bolts level? Jesus has a way. He has a way and I want to share it with you today. And I'm going to tell you here this morning that the world needs to see it. The world needs to see it. You need to live by it. It's what Jesus wants for you. Now, I'm going to preface what I'm going to share with you today by telling you what it comes on the heels of. It comes right on the heels of a parable Jesus tells about how when a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one goes astray, he leaves the 99 to go searching for the one. The idea being, of course, that for God, everyone is valuable. Even nasty people. 
even mean people, ugly people, people who are natural born enemies, people who have a different education, a different race, a different politics, a different income level, a different nationality, a different accent, a different job, or anything of the sort. That those people are valuable to God too, that, that people who we would rather dismiss. It's easier without them, I got 99, just let them go. No, that's not God's way. So what I'm about to tell you comes right on the heels of that. I also want to preface it by saying this. It really stinks. I hate this. I I really do. I I don't like what Jesus says here. And not because I don't believe it. No, I've seen it. It works. And I believe it heart and soul. I hate it because I just don't like to do it. It's hard. It's scary. It makes life tougher in the short term. But what I have found unequivocally is that those who do it and those who live by it, it is so much better in the end. It comes from Matthew chapter 18. And it comes in sequence. Jesus actually gives a sequence of events of what you're supposed to do. This is very rare for Jesus. Have you noticed? Jesus often doesn't give a schematic or a flow plan to life. He gives principles. He gives maxims. And he almost kind of leaves you going, no, you figure this one out. This is different. No, huddle up. I'm going to show you exactly how to step through it because the sequence is vital for doing it right. So let me share it with you today. And it starts here at Matthew 18. Let's have it, okay? And he says this. If your brother sins against you, It should say, go, show him his fault. So make sure to get it right, even though we have a typo there. If your brother sins against you, go, show him his fault. Just between the two of you. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother over. Can I be straight? Are we like done already? Should I just... Like, no, it's, it's already too far. Because I would rather avoid. How about you? It's not what it says. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. And if he listens, you have won your brother over. There's so much to unpack here, and I just beg your patience as I seek to extract some of the nuances of this verse here this morning. First, notice that it refers to your brother. It doesn't apply to everyone, at least not how Jesus says it. Maybe there's wisdom in using this practice with everyone, but he specifically talks about your brother. Now, I don't think he's talking about your biological brother, but I certainly wouldn't remove him from the equation. No, as I said earlier, brother is a term used by Christians to refer to one another that though you are my natural-born enemy, you are my brother, because we are family in Christ. And so if you see a Christian, someone who claims to be Christian, your brother sinning against you, go and show him his fault. It starts because at least we can assume 
there's a common value base, a common idea, a common perspective, and a common allegiance that we can speak from that isn't always the case with people who are not our brothers. How far you want to extend this, we can discuss, but let's keep it where Jesus talks today. That you have a mandate. This isn't a suggestion. This isn't a good idea. This isn't just a way to make your life better. It's a command. And if you take on the name of Christ, you are obligated to follow it. That you have duty and obligation that if your brother has sinned against you, you need to go and show it to him. How does that sound to you? Let's hire someone to do it. It doesn't work that way. I notice how it says if he sins against you. It's interesting, some of you know this, but there's the various manuscripts, various text traditions, if you will, of the Bible. And for the most part, they're quite boring. This one has Christ Jesus, this one has Jesus Christ. But once in a while, they matter. And Matthew, there's actually a variance here. And it's the only one of the Gospel of Matthew that really matters. Here's the variant. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault. It's a little bit different, isn't it? Is it just if it's personal? Or is it if I see sin at all? At what level am I obligated? Let me help you navigate that and navigate it with a question. Do you love your brother? Or at least are you called to? And if you're going to take the call to love your brother seriously and you see them engaged in destructive behavior that's hurting them or others, what would love demand that you do? You can never reduce it less than a sin against you. You are obligated that if the brother has sinned against you, intentionally or not, to go and show him his fault. How far it goes beyond that, you'll have to navigate in your heart, in your spirit, with God. Notice also what it says. If your brother sins against you, show him his fault by posting it on social media. Let the world know what an arrogant, ignorant, evil person he is. Don't we get it so wrong? Know that I'm supposed to go to him personally, which means that when you see that nasty post, to avoid is not what God is calling you to do, not if it's coming from a brother. Nor is it to engage in retaliatory strikes. No. It's to pick up the phone and actually talk to him. It's to inconvenience your life and drive to his house and knock on his door and talk to him. Do you realize how nobody does this? Maybe are we seeing the problem in the world today? It's to reach out personally in a medium, in a way where inflection can be heard, sensitivity can be met, 
and with humility and graciousness and gentleness. And all the ways those passages that I shared with you last week seek to frame. Say, brother, and you call him that. Brother, I know this is catching you by surprise and I know this is really weird and I'm really sorry. But I gotta tell you, you hurt me. And it's bothering me. And he looks at you like, what are you talking about? And you simply share. You don't bring everything up from 10 years past. You don't bring up a track record. You don't make a case like a lawyer. You keep it to the issue. Short, simple, swift. And you hurt me. And it's bothering me. And I don't want there to be something between us or something between you and others because I think this was ugly. And then you listen to what your brother has to say. And this is going to be surprising to a lot of you that if you do that and you do it in the right way, I'll just tell you this firsthand. More often than not, oh my gosh, I am so sorry. I didn't even realize. Or, yeah, no, I hear you. I was having a really bad day. Or, I don't make this up. Thank you. It just makes me so angry. And even if it's not completely resolved, at least a dialogue has formed that day. <laughs> Never let anyone tell you that Christianity is for the weak and cowards. Just because most Christians are gutless doesn't mean it doesn't take guts to follow Jesus. Men, you want to be someone of courage? Do you want to have someone who has guts? Jesus is showing you the way. And the goal is that your brother would be won over. Because that's always the goal with God. Reconciliation. Forgiveness. Repentance. The goal is not to humiliate. The goal is not to trounce. The goal is not to expose. The goal is not to intimidate. The goal is not to humiliate. I like how the Christian songwriter Audrey Coyne was quoted in putting this, who said, if you speak the truth without love, you're just a bully. I want to show you a meme today. And it makes me laugh, it shouldn't, but it does. It's from my wife. Not directed, it's just random. Maybe you saw it. Someone posts, I prefer mangoes to oranges. Response. So basically what you're saying is that you hate oranges. You also fail to mention pineapples, bananas, and grapefruits. Educate yourself. It wouldn't be funny if it wasn't so true. And can I just say, doesn't it bother you that mangoes are spelled wrong? It actually isn't. We had to look it up. It's spelled correctly, but anyway, I had to mention. What's wrong with this response? Give yourself a moment. What's wrong with it? And think critically on the basis of what I've just told you. 
See, I think everyone is inclined to jump to the fact that the person who responds gets angry, reactionary, making blanket statements, judging their character and everything else. Yes, that might be wrong, but that's not the real issue. The real issue is that the random person didn't go to the person personally. They didn't do it Jesus' way. Now, let's say that you have this conversation and your brother is won over. Hallelujah, we are done. We walk together closer, probably, with more of a real connection between us, probably, because of what we shared that's real and vulnerable and honest in a dignified, respectful kind of way. But let's say it doesn't. Let's say it goes south, because it might. Jesus' way is no guarantee that it will always work in your favor. What if it is met by someone calling you an orange hater, a pineapple hater, a grapefruit hater, you bigot? What if it's met by escalating nastiness and ugliness and invective kind of speech? Well, Jesus then escalates too. He brings us to verse 16. Let me share it with you. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Because we have these moments, don't we, where someone says something and then you have this moment where you have the immediate emotional reaction, but then you start questioning yourself, don't you? You start doubting yourself, right? Going, wait, am I just being too sensitive I mean, is this just me? Is it just setting me off? Am I really making a mountain out of a molehill here? I want to share another email with you this morning. Amazing woman here at FOF sent this to me over the last couple of weeks. I'm so glad you're addressing the issue of social media and what is going on today. I'm frustrated and confused about how Christians can be so diametrically different in their opinion about what is right in God's eyes. Can you identify? I feel strongly about a few issues, but what if I'm wrong? And that is not how God wants me to think. I understand that arguing is often a waste of time. It doesn't usually change anything. When are we supposed to stand up for what we think is right? It seems like right now very few people want to discuss or listen to why the other person feels the way that they do. They just want them to agree with them. I don't understand why people now think it's okay to be vicious when stating their opinions. Why is it okay to lump people into groups and say that all of them think the same way? I'm tired of the anger. I don't know what to do. We've all been there. I hear you. Jesus' way is an answer to that question, a solution, if you will, to the question, how do I know if I'm right? How do I know what God wants me to do? If someone has hurt you, you always got to go one-to-one because you've got to process it with the person, whether you're right or not. But let's say the other person shoots it down. It might be because they don't want to hear. But it also might be because you're the one 
who's mistaken or oversensitive or wrong. So Jesus says, bring two or three along. He draws from Deuteronomy, the Old Testament tore away. Bring two or three other brothers along. If you, you walk away and you convince this to not go well, not to gang up on them, not to intimidate them, not on social media for all to see. No, that isn't two or three. No, you bring two or three others along to mediate. When's the last time this has happened to you? Because nobody does this. And no matter what we wear is jewelry, and no matter whose name we claim, nobody does it Jesus' way. But he says bring two or three others to mediate, to moderate, to bring peace, to work through, to help each other side see. Because Jesus sees reconciliation with your brother as that important. Yes, that important that you would go to that level. Two or three who are wise, mature, even had a not two or three who are going to tell you whatever you want to hear. Two or three that are respected as mature, God-honoring believers above reproach in various ways. It's why we have elders here. Not that they have to be the people that serve in this role, that people who can for you, but only after. You've already done the hard work of one-to-one. It keeps it from being a witch hunt. It keeps it from escalating that if the matter is settled with them, then I need to work on myself, my heart, and why it's rubbing me so wrong in this time and place. But let's say the two or three see what you're seeing. They're going, yeah, this is really ugly. There is something here. Well, then Jesus escalates again. Verse 17, he says this, but if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Because see, here's the thing. All of us, all of us, all of us have a propensity to sin. It just struck me. I don't think I've ever pounded a pulpit before in my life. That felt pretty good. Let me do it again. All of us, all of us have a propensity to sin. Man, I want a big oak one here next week, you know? Don't we, though? We all have a propensity to sin. We all need accountability. We don't like that word. We all need people in our life making us aware of the effect that we are having on other people. It's what the church is supposed to do. Does it? Not really. When's the last time that's happened to you? Because nobody does it. Nobody does the way of Jesus. But that doesn't mean we're called to dismiss it. No, it's what we're called to do. You bring it to the church that the community can then come and say, brother, your soul is in danger. This, this path that you're on, it's hurtful and harmful. 
And brother, we love you. We're not trying to embarrass you. But we got to call you on this one. We don't think that you're doing it Jesus' way. And the hope is that by, by, that, that, by that level of love and unity, a wandering soul will repent that day. Hey, big man. My gut tells me they probably won't. It's just 25 years of professional ministry experience, but no. They probably won't. In a country where there's a church on every street corner and now a thousand at your fingertips, they'll just go away. Some in a huff, some with a trail of tears and comments and accusations. Some you just never see again and you don't know why. I've seen so much of this. I mean, the real sad ones. Hopping every six to 18 months from church to church to church, thinking that every church will be a collocation of natural-born friends. And as soon as they come across someone who disagrees with them, who looks at them the wrong way, who offends them, packing up in a huff and going away and spending a lifetime of never really knowing or experiencing what true community, family, or church really is. Because for most people, church is about the product. Church is about what I get out of it, what makes me feel good, what, what does it for me to make my life better. It's about the music I like or the sermon that inspires me or what they have for my kids. How it makes me feel that day. What blessings of God those are. But that's not what church is. No, church is about people. Relationships with people. And relationships with people are all about commitment. And hopefully this is revealing something to you. That there really aren't that many churches in our world today. No, there's places that have the name, but more often than not, religious shopping malls or restaurants. Where autonomous individuals come to sample from the same menu or store of services. and then go on their way. The church of Jesus is called to be something so different, such a different kind of way. It should reveal something else to you. That here in our church, there isn't really something called fellowship of faith. No, I think it would be better to say there's fellowships of faith. Because here there are some who call themselves members connected, part of fellowship of faith, but really aren't a part of the fellowship of faith found in Jesus. Because for them, it's never transitioned from product to people. For them, it's just about what I get out of it and what's in it for me. 
with very little commitment to the others around. That within a church, there will be both something visible and invisible. That which looks like church before our eyes, but that which is really the church of Jesus within it. And those two things are often very different things. Don't be surprised if those who go by the name of Christ despise this process, call you names, and walk away. It's just revealing to you what the real fellowship of faith actually was all along. And Jesus says at that point, well, there is a time for you to walk away as well. Not to be mean, not to be hurtful, not to close the door, but to treat them as a pagan and a tax collector. It sounds harsh, doesn't it? But can I ask, how did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? He loved them. He welcomed them when they would come to him. He went among them to know them and spend time with them. But he didn't view them as the fellowship of faith. He just hoped that they would go from being the crowd to disciple someday. And the reality of this process is that for you, it will be the same. And that's hard. It's hard when that happens for people that you care about, but you can't change a human heart. Only God can do that. And there comes a point for Jesus where he says, it's in my hands now. You've done what you could. You've done what's right. You have done what you can to try to bring reconciliation here. Now, it's in their hands. And if we could just master this three-verse package here, oh, we might have something actually called church on our hands. It would be different. It would be odd. People around us might not get it. But I think it would be salt. I think it would be salt in this world. And I want to leave you today with this follow-up thought of how to going about doing it. One time? Two times? Should we do this seven times? You know where I'm going. What does Jesus say? Not seven, I tell you, 70 times seven. Do you know he says it right after this passage? Literally, where that verse comes from is like right after this passage. Now, you can keep count if you want. But I think it misses the spirit of it. No, you keep doing this with a person again and again and again in order every time they've offended you. I want to quote to you from Albert Tate. He put it this way. You have to be a foot washer. Just because someone's wrong doesn't mean they're worthless. 
Just because you're wrong doesn't mean you get to get canceled. The cancel culture is not Christian. Jesus didn't cancel Judas. I can't cancel you as much as I might want to. Jesus is calling us to authentic lives that calls us to wash the feet of both allies and enemies, friends and critics through drastic acts of compassion. Ask yourself, who would be surprised by your compassion? Some of you already know who I'm talking about. Jesus was betrayed and still washed Judas' feet. That one floored me when I heard it. Because you kind of know it, but you forget it, don't you? He knew. He even said, one of you at this table is going to betray me. And he knew who, and he still got down, and he washed Judas' feet. Jesus was betrayed and still washed Judas' feet. What does it mean to grow authentically inside and to show compassion to those we lead? Or how James 5.16 puts it, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. Here's how it ends. So that you might be healed. (laughs) Did James know something there or what? I want you to get it down. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so you may be healed. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Onliners. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so you may be healed. Do you want to see healing? Listen to Jesus. Listen to James. Look, if you're not doing the faith training yet, hop on. All this week, we've been putting out on social media those passages from last week. Memorize them. You just learned this one. See how quick it can go? Hop on our faith training webpage. Get in the hook on this. 9 a.m. every day on social media, you'll get your verse of the day. Here's the list of them again. You got it? There they are. You got it? Good. Okay, let's move on. Go to social media. Key them in. Band, I want to invite you back up. I thank you for your extra patience and the length of what I shared today, but I didn't know how to do it another way. As they're coming up and getting ready, I have a poem, right? No. This poem was written and sent to me by a regular attender here at Fellowship of Faith. Someone who said, a person who writes, this is how he wants to be quoted, a person who likes to write soliloquies concerning the Lord. Anytime someone sends you a poem, you got to read it, right? It's just like, and this, this rocks. Brother, you rock this one. Let this just be maybe something prayerful and meditative for you. It's entitled Justified. I have a cause. I have a reason. I have an excuse. I am justified. I can ignore because they do not accept me. I can reject because they are so wrong about me. I can judge because they are so different than me. 
I can correct because I reflect normalcy. I can remain silent because they refuse to change. I can condemn because they offend my sensibilities. I can be justified because I am a righteous, decent person. And as I lay dying, my eyes are opened. There is no one righteous, not one. Has my heart been opened as well? I am immersed in my own hypocrisy. My impunity of judgment convicts me. Am I too late? I am my own accuser drowning in my self-righteousness. Who then can come to my defense? Who can uphold me? It is only by the body and blood of the lamb that justifies. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Lord, we come as sinners in your hands seeking redemption. Often self-justified, reactionary, or avoidant. Very few of us daring to practice your radical call to a radical way, but only there, O oh Lord, is there healing. Only there is there healing for our souls and theirs. Only there is there healing in our church and in our community, in our nation, in our families, with our friends, and with our enemies. May we dare to confess our sins to one another and to be receptive to those who call us to repentance. Lord, may we be quick to listen as we are to speak. Ah, oh, forgive us. We are an ugly community, an ugly people, and caught up in so much ugliness around us. Lord, we struggle, we doubt, we wonder, what do I do, what do I say? It affects us, God, it affects us deep. And all the while, you call to a different way. God, may we hear, heed the words today, may I heed them. I want to, forgive me. Oh, Lord Jesus, may we be a people that commit to practicing, practicing how we relate to others. Your way. Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We justly deserve your present and eternal punishment. But for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Lord, forgive us, renew us, and lead us so that we may delight, yes, delight in your will and walk, yes, walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Jesus Christ forgives you by the blood of the lamb. You are washed clean, even the nastiest among you. In him is redemption, even for you who avoid and delete and eliminate 
In him there is reconciliation. May you embrace it in him and for each other. And may you find it in his way. May you revel in his blood. May you bask in it. Roll in it together with your worst enemy. May it coat you in every conversation and every disposition and every feeling of the heart that you discover in the ugly side of community. God be with you guys.